hello and welcome to episode 17 of Dano's Says So. Um, of all the guests I've had on so far, with the possible exception of Vic Bondi from Chicago, uh, this is a veteran's veteran, meaning this is somebody who I grew up listening to and who, while I don't know personally before today, their work has been present in this even longer than I have. Um, 40 years worth of Poison Idea, if you go by the calendar. That makes it exciting and something I didn't ever think would happen. So before we even start to investigate that, Jerry, Jerry A. Lang, thank you very much for doing this. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, are you from Portland originally, or did you, did you end up there by family? Or um, I was born in Oregon, yes. Okay. And started going to high school in, when I was like 15 in Portland. I was from Eugene, born in Eugene. That's down about 100 miles south of Portland. Okay. Yeah. I mean, to go, you know, I was familiar with 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 uh, Poison Idea by way of your vinyl, but in getting ready for this thing, you start rooting around on the internet trying to find more, right? And I would come across interviews for countless bands in '80 where you were playing bass. You know how do, how does how does how does Jerry Lang of Portland, Oregon, find his way to the stage? Well, I mean, bass, bass guitars is a stepping stone. It's like I didn't know how to, I guess I could have just tried to start a band and start screaming and singing right away, but uh, I couldn't play guitar, I couldn't play drums. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think anybody can play bass. Anybody can sing, anybody, you know, but it's, I, I just kind of bluffed my way into it. I was like, yeah, yeah I, can, I can play. And they said, okay, sink or swim, and I had to do it. Did you kind of come into it with the long-term ambition of being a singer or the unspoken ambition of being a singer? Yeah, I wrote out a sheet, like a, I said, one year, my year plan. I was like, in one year, I will be singing in a band. Are you no, serious or are you fucking with me? No, I just, you know what, we, I was in like different bands playing bass and now I go back and I, I like bass. I just start playing bass again. I love bass. Of, I, it's, it was, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was the easiest. And I was shy. Nobody wants to, you know, to start, you know, spilling your emotions out and singing about, you know, whatever when you're a kid. But um, I, I think that's a lot of, you see these old videos of whoever, you know, SSD and all these old bands when they were kids. Playing, and I think that's why it just seems so intense. And so they had a lot to do with nerves. I mean, I can relate to that. I was, I was a front man. I, I, I sang for my first band in 83 and my first real bands you know, later in the 80s. And I was my own little pocket baby version of a savage on stage, but I was a painfully shy person in my private life. Yeah, yeah, it comes out. You know, I was, when I was uh, talking to Mark earlier, he was, I was going, yeah, I think I might have, we might have played, I, I, for some reason, I was sure, it might have been like a dream, but I thought we played together in LA back in the well, here's what I know for sure. And 411 might have played with Poison Idea. But what I do know is you played with bands on my label and you did it at the country club. That's what that's okay. what And I think I'm pretty sure we crossed paths there. I'll give you some inside baseball that you hopefully take as a compliment. Like, I remember being going down on the floor, which I didn't usually do to watch bands at the country club. And I went down on the floor while Poison Idea played. Went up and was looking up watching you guys play. And I turned to Billy Rubin, who was my best friend growing up. So these guys are just flat out fucking scary, dude. You know, <laughs> fuck the misfits. Fuck all these gangsters in advance. These guys are sketchy. 
Yeah, I remember. I remember that show. I, um, you know, I remember um, playing at Fenders and uh, mm -hmm. these these kids throwing shit at me. These like these skinheads mm -hmm. and um, and just saying fuck it. You know, it's like there's worse things in life than getting punched in the face. And so I jumped in the crowd and jumped at, after these guys and I tackled a couple of them. And then I started getting stomped by all these people. And I remember being down on the ground thinking. Like, this doesn't really hurt. I go, you know, when I was 12, I go, my father used to hit me like 10 times harder than this. this so part, like, that's that's the ultimate snapshot of mid-80s fenders right there. It's, yeah. it's absolutely what the place was. Well, listen, that frames things nicely, which is what I wanted to get to was um, 83 is pick your king, right? Yeah. So three, four years later, probably for uh, Kings of Punk. Yeah, we did Record Collectors and then Kings of Punk. and um, Kings of Punk was my first real introduction, a real baptism, right? Into you guys. And by then, I would argue that hardcore was starting to subgenre out and sketch out even more cleanly to some really savagely clean-cut people who had no real basis in early punk rock and people who were kind of caught between the two worlds. And that LP, for me, was a firm anchor in the longevity of mean-ass visceral unedited punk rock so thank you for that sure sure well that's the thing you know it's like on that kings of punk record we released that one thank you list of all the bands that influenced us and mm -hmm. even though it might have not sounded like it there was so much stuff coming out i mean obviously you want to emulate and pay tribute to the stuff that you're listening to and what gets you off and mm -hmm. of course it was you know discharge black flag germs whatever that motorhead but um you know we also thanked you know whatever hawkwind sid barrett right. um, you know just just crazy stuff that we we're listening to all the time you mm -hmm. know small faces whatever and and but and it doesn't sound like it you listen to it now and i remember we used to do that we used to open one of our songs with we start the riff of a pink floyd song at the beginning but kind of like kind of like punk pink floyd we just it was the exact same song. We'd just speed it up and play it different. And uh, people were like, so, I don't know. It was like, you know, that's the spice of life. It was, that's why it was so, that time was so great because everything was so, so new, you know, and um, mm -hmm. getting turned on to whatever at that time, you know, Howlin' Wolf for the first time, like just blowing your mind. Be like, oh, this old guy's copying, in, copying Led Zeppelin. It's like, no, Led Zeppelin copied him, you know, and go, really? And then getting into that listening to that and just you know that mental perspective may have been ahead of its time because i come to love all of the things that i wish i could brag i've been it became this whole like quest for authenticity amongst a lot of middle-aged punk rockers where they're trying to claim that they listened to be it country or be it the early detroit stuff or whatever ever since they were a kid and and i did i came in on a very fast succession of Sex Pistols to MDC to Minor Threat to whatever was available in Zeds, right? I didn't, you know, I wasn't a teenager listening to Iggy, you know, and I wasn't, you know, I only had very brief flirtations with stuff that was, you know, pre-punk and, and completely outside punk like Pink Floyd and things like that, right? Now, at this age, I think it makes you a better musician. You're better at you're a better informed artist in any genre if you understand things outside your own narrow field of vision. It sounds to me like you beat me to the punch a little bit on that one. 
No, it's just, you know, it's just listening to being honest and, and uh, appreciating stuff that sounds good. It doesn't matter what it is, you know, it doesn't matter what the genre is. You can't just be, you know, uniform and just say this is, you know, if it, if it turns you on and if it's good and if it's honest and from the heart, then you have to give it credit. So that's just what, that's just what, you know, we, that's what we listen to. So, yeah, I have a question for you and I've, there's been plenty of times in my life where I'm, I'm guilty of some pretty serious missteps and some things I like to keep in my closet. And I'm not about to ask you for closet material. But where I'm going is the crazy aggressive music and a band who went through some notoriously crazy and traumatic times. Your execution always struck me as incredibly disciplined, sort of state of the art as far as getting the job done. Was that ever difficult? Was that ever was there ever a conflict between how the band was living and how the band was executing? Because to the outside eye, you guys just crushed it eternally. Well, I mean, you know, being where we were at in Portland, I mean, there was a time when there wasn't, I, mean, I remember in the 80s where a few of the bands broke up and went back to school or whatever, and the one club got shut down, and I remember just um, thinking, there are no bands in this town. There's nothing mm -hmm. going on in this town. But you like music, and uh, you have your friends, your band, friends, and um. So you bring your own shows every night to your house and, okay. we would, and we would play every night. We would, you know, practice. We'd sit around during the day and write songs we'd, at night. We'd get together and practice and we would do that all the time because, you know, there was the shows were maybe every month. Right. Back then. So, yeah. So uh, that's what we do. We just play all the time. And uh, that's, you know, I'm sure like, you know, in wherever like Kansas city or, you know, in the Midwest, there's lots of bands like that. And you can hear a lot of bands like that, too, you know. Indianapolis bands or stuff that just, they just, like, you know that that's all they do. Is, and you can see them on stage. It's like... Muscle you know, memory? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so... Um, how many years in were you guys before you made it to Europe? Hell, before you even made it across the United States. Well, you know, we had everything we needed here. We were comfortable in Portland, and, uh, you know, bands would come up. I mean, bands were coming up um early early like in mm -hmm. the late 70s because uh vancouver bc was a big place i mean when the clash came here on their uh, pearl harbor thing they that's the one place they played they didn't play like anywhere on the west coast i think they might have played san francisco maybe that tour but the bands used to come up from los angeles all the time like mm -hmm. you know, the doa and the deals would come down uh, subhumans, pointed sticks, uh, young Canadians, those bands would come down. And then mm -hmm. LA, it was like the, the screamers, the weirdos, the zeros, the Avengers, all that. They would come up. So we'd be right in the middle. We'd see them back and forth. And a lot of those bands started in Seattle too, like Penelope and uh, Tomato from the screamers. So they would, they were in Seattle. So they moved to LA. So they would be going back and forth home and they would come up and we would catch, you know, in the middle. So we had, we were fine. We had, you know, all these bands were coming here to Portland and uh, mm -hmm. we didn't have to leave, you know, and Black Flag, of course, did that. You know, I, the first time was with Ron and then with Dez, they must've came mm -hmm. here like four times with Dez at least. Yeah. And so they were coming through all the time and, um, you know, we didn't need to, there's nowhere to, from Portland, I mean, there's Boise, but that's hit or miss and Salt Lake City. And that's the same. 
And then from there, it's like, you know. Well, I, I get it. This is years later, but on my first U.S. tour, we ended up in Vegas on the way home after being out for about five weeks, right? Mm-hmm. And the next date was going to be Seattle. And the drive, the ocean, was so vast, we ended up taking our merch money and just heading straight to San Francisco for the week. You know, yeah. it was just like, it just, it seemed like we were risking too much mileage on the van and everything else. So I think about when times were even scarcer and people were cutting across the Midwest. And it was like, it's amazing more of us didn't perish in the desert, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was like the Donner Party type stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you are a beloved band in Europe. Um, I've been lucky enough to do a little mileage in Europe. When did you first go over? Um, well, we did the... We went to the what, the East Coast uh, right before Feel the Darkness. And then once Feel the Darkness came out, then in, like we went and started going to Europe like in 92. Mm-hmm. 92. And, uh, you know, that was the cool thing about the East Coast, like, you know, New York and Boston and all that, is they were so close. The places were so close. You could take trains to each city if you wanted to. But no one had to leave. They were completely different. You know, like Pennsylvania, you had Pittsburgh, all the cities, you know, Philadelphia. Did you guys end up doing the thing where you'd, like, pick a home base and hit all the other, like, tri-state cities from there? Or you know? um, There was some pretty crazy stuff. We, I mean, I have to admit, we weren't just, we weren't really disciplined when it came to touring. I mean, because we were out there, and we were, um, I think, in Pennsylvania, and we found this, uh, we stopped at this Italian uh, we st- we were staying in this hotel. There was this Italian restaurant, takeout restaurant down the street. Okay. And they had like you know like veal and eggplant parms and stuff like that. We're like, oh my god, this is so good. And mm-hmm. we looked at our map and we said, let's cancel tomorrow. <laughs> let's go to the next show late and then come and let's come back. So we stayed in this hotel for like three days and just just hung out and ate this food because it was so good. And we like canceled the shows to to like you know to hang out and just eat this food. I'm sitting here probing for terrifying <laughs> stories of drug and alcohol, and I'm getting we put lasagna first. <laughs> well, well, there was a couple times where I remember in the hotels. Uh, I forgot for what reason there was. Uh, I think I don't know it was road excess. Let's just say that, and mm-hmm. um, the bathrooms got kind of kind of bloody and kind of fucked up, and um, right. and we're just like we can't leave, and like I think. Somebody passed out and vomited all over, and then somebody's in the bathroom, and there was doing some kind of minor surgery, and then blood and stuff was all over. Oh, as one, as one will, you know. Yeah, right. And we couldn't, and we couldn't check out. And then we go to leave, and our bands broke. So they're the major going. You have to leave, and we're going. Uh, don't come in. Don't come in because the place looked like a slaughterhouse. Right. It's like you know, and so we're trying to get the van started, mm-hmm. and we're packed up, ready to go. And you know, it's one of these things where. They're like, you have to go, you have to go. And we're like, we can't mm-hmm. go because, you know, whatever, somebody burned the mattress or something. And mm-hmm. we just ran. And I remember just hearing these people scream, you know, just like screaming in the background. And these are bad hotels. These are hotels with like bullet holes in the doors and stuff. Right. We saw it all, but this is like, yeah, there was some pretty bad stuff. And I, I just don't want to get too graphic about this. Well, my, my thinking was is to try and be respectful of the fact that people – People go through different phases in their lives and have regrets and everything else. And this is our first, this is our first face to face that we're certain of, you know, that we're not trying to guess the room it was in. So it's, it's, it's up to you what you want to share. People largely know the story. I find it fascinating 
the person I'm encountering as I, as I investigate you now, I think it's a little bit early to get there. Um, so I, I kind of, I don't need you to tell me what to tell me war stories. If war stories make you uncomfortable, they're written all over your face, which is a good yeah, face. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, it's because I just, you know, it's just, I just don't, I just don't take pe people seriously when they, you know, if that's what, when you meet people and they, they come off and the first thing they start saying is, oh, oh, fuck this, fucking that, fuck, right away they just start, you know, laying on it just, you know, about so, how, how, yeah, how fucking hard they are. And you just kind of don't take them seriously and you think something's, why are they fronting like this, you know? Well, I'll ask, I'll ask you a little bit mushier question and it is yours to answer or not. Which is when you run down the line of it, there's been a lot of loss in that lineup over the years. And I know, I know, I know it's a defunct band now, but I knew, I knew about the, the, the passing of Tom Pig back in the day. I remember that in real time, right? But as I started reading up, because, you know, you'd been out of my regular rotation as far as Spotify driving around in my fancy new black car, you know, as far as maybe 2020 went until I was like, dude, I want to talk to this guy, right? So I started reading it up and going through the notes. As a band, you guys may have been through more hard loss and danger than anybody else I know of. Two things. Did that play a role in ultimately hanging it up? And does that come with a lot of regret? Or is it just perspective? You know? Um, not really any regrets. You know, I've been locked up in places before, like uh, drying out, sobering up in, in places. and you know, and I remember that we'd have like motivational doctor speakers, people come in and they would say, and they would say, they go, well, you know, nobody grows up as a child that wants to be a drug addict. And I would sit there and go, you know what? I go, when I was a kid, I think it was kind of cool. I go like Keith Richards, you know, I thought it was really cool. I like that stuff. I like, you know, that shit. And I, and so we did, we did want to be like that as you know, you know, the sex pistol, that, I was a kid. I thought Sid Vicious was like like a Superman type guy, even though he was a clown. You know, I thought it was funny. Guilty of the same fucking thing. Dude. That was that was both my fashion and my and my public my public persona for you know from eighty to eighty three. Yeah. So so yeah. You know, and and then you you surround yourself with that and kind of like I say, kind of act, and eventually it surrounds you too, and it, and it takes you in. You have no choice, and so it's like you keep playing with it and mm -hmm. it'll, you know, it'll, it'll suck you up and, and then you're, then it's too late. It's not fashionable. It's not funny anymore. And then you, you wake up and that's the way it goes. But uh, mm -hmm. yeah, that's just, you know, um, it did have something with us uh, giving it up because, um, you know, I, I got diabetes really bad and I uh, started getting body parts cut off. Parts of my fucking toes were getting chopped off on tour and stuff. And I was getting like gangrene and, all this crazy stuff. And um, it just, I felt there was a time in the early 2000s where we were kind of just going through the motions for, for whatever reason. And I felt it was kind of like, uh, wasn't being honest. And mm -hmm. I felt like these suck, these shows suck. Um, people are just fucked up. I mean, they can't, they're, you know, just, I, I remember looking over at people on stage and they were like hitting open strings on their guitar and their eyes were like rolled back in their head and they're on stage just like going like in your I'm, in your lineup yeah yeah okay. and just go, just going this isn't good you know it's kind of good if you want to see you know people i would go see johnny thunders and i would because of that reason i wanted to see the guy fall over and i thought that was right good. but i guess when you do that every night it's just like 
maybe the maybe some people think it's cool, but some people actually like to hear songs, completed songs. And I just, you know, I said, well, you know what? Let's let's get our shit together and go back and do a couple, just all the places that I felt that we didn't do good shows. Let's go back and just blow the doors off the place, and then just you know, hang up our boots and fucking move on to the next whatever the next thing is. There's always mm-hmm. something. You always got to, you know, just there's always new things, that, the unknown, you know, so. Right. Um, there's two forms of unknown I want to ask you about. Um, the first one being there is a Mrs. Lang, a Jennifer Lang, who factors largely into what you put out in front of the pub- public these days. Uh, how is, how is, how is, being a married man at this point in the game? Oh, it's great. I mean, I'm having a great time. She, you know, I, she was like a, a neighborhood advocate um, for uh, just people. I was walking my dogs one day and um, there was all this uh, garbage in a, in a playground, like mm-hmm. uh, syringes and just like dirty, just all sorts of really gross shit, diapers and fucking waste and shit. And I was like, mm-hmm. what the fuck is this? This is a playground with little children right. playing around syringes. And so I came on uh, social media and screamed about it. And somebody goes, you should talk to this neighborhood advocate. She'll, she like actually passed laws in the city to clean the fucking place up. And so I contacted her and she talked to me and um, we kind of hit it off. And, you know, she was like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm in this band. And she's like, oh, I never heard of it. She's like, what kind of music? She's like, oh, you're, you know, this. And so she never heard of my band ever. Didn't like this kind of music, okay. but we got along great. And I thought she was a, you know, firecracker and, and it was great. So we hit it off and it was just like, you know, that's, it was like a new world. You know, she's, she's in mental health and uh, she's doing that right now. She's taking care of her, you know, she's still masking up and going out in the public and, taking care of like, you know, people who can't take care of themselves. So it was, yeah, it was noble. And I thought it was really, you know, honorable that this person was like that. And I dug it. And, uh, you know, it, so. it, it reads, it reads as a very happy pairing and a very healthy pairing. And I don't mean to get into corny or sweet space on my punk rock podcast, but it seemed like it would not have been, Showing your light in correct life, your life in correct light, not to ask about it. No, she, you know, she, I, things come up, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and I just go, ah, oh, you know, that's, she's like, well, you're a good guy. You're a good guy. And I go, well, you know, there was a time. <laughs> this would, she's like, well, but, it, you know, everybody, you know, she, she believes that if people couldn't change, she wouldn't be in this line of work she's in. Like people do, you know, there is, change and stuff and people can you know so so yes yeah. <laughs> i'm not sure telling what i'm hearing is that you're saying the missus hasn't done a lot of minor surgery in motel bathrooms <laughs> no <laughs> no when I, t- I say things and sh- i just blow her mind you know right she'll, she'll say stuff something will come up and i'll go oh yeah you know i remember finding an arm over there or something she's like what you know like what are you talking about it's like oh yeah this, you know this house blew up and you know body parts flew all over something like that and, Okay. Um, two other things I want to get to, and, and uh, I think that I'd l- last like to ask you about this book that you have coming up. Real quick, a lot of reissues going on with Poison Idea. Are you doing that stuff exclusively with Mark? or? Yeah, well, you know. Um, when I, start- talk to, I was going to talk to Mark about you on Friday, 
And he was like, actually sent me a picture of Vacant going on the press. It was like, you know, can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't have the, the means to, to reissue the stuff myself. And people in Europe were jumping on it and they were like bootlegging stuff. And I, I would go over there and see these old records that were out of print mm -hmm. being, and they were substandard, shitty quality, and they just sounded like crap. And right. Then, so Mark, he actually wants to, he finds, you know, whatever the original tapes, we found the original tapes, we um, found the original artworks, all the extra stuff, all the liner notes. Um, then he talked to the people who, like the engineers and the producers who were there in the studio. So he's got, it's a, it's a real, you know, Oh, it's a labor. Of, it's a labor of love for him. Well, you said you watched the the TKO interview, the one that I did with him. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're the, you know, your stuff is the backdrop in that office. You know, it's, yeah. It's behind his head the whole time he's talking about his about his passion for vinyl. Oh yeah, and he's you know you you go to that place, it's great. You know, yeah. Steve from Mudhoney works there, and there's all these you know these different people all working, and and they're all it's just it's a like you said it's a labor of love. It's these people are they they live this. You can just tell that. It's it's great. It's a great feeling, you know, to be to have this, you know. So, so you're gonna do a book? Um, yeah, I. There was a cat that used to live here in Portland, Adam Parfrey. Okay. And he ran Feral House, and uh, we we were a lot alike in a way that we both, you know, got off on chaos and having a good time and, and better things in life. And um, we hung out for a long time, and, and I would tell stories, you know, same thing again. I would say, <clears throat> you know, different things about, and he would say, oh, you need to write these things down. You know, you should tell these stories about this, about your growing up and your childhood and stuff. And mm -hmm. he ran a publishing company, Feral House, and he said, if you write them down, I'll put them out. And so I, it took me like 10 years because I was mm -hmm. doing other things, other important things to do, like try to kill myself. And that didn't that didn't work out so well. So I figured I might as well finish this book. And uh, I finished it. And then uh, Adam had a stroke and died. And so um, I had somebody edit it and look at it. And then um, I just kind of shopped it around. And uh, this guy in L.A. Uh, from Rare Bird picked it up and said, said, yeah, it's pretty pretty crazy. I can imagine harder, harder, harder items to shop, sir. You know. <laughs> yeah, he was happy. He was people were happy with it. Everybody who I put it out there, and everybody liked it. So. Uh, right. Well, I always do this in sincere, in sincere fashion, but also just sort of as a matter of uh, framing. I ask people if they be if they would come back again, but I will put this to you rather specifically. When it is out and it has read, can I get you on again to pick your brain about its pages? Well, of course. That would be fantastic. Well, listen, um, I am going to go ahead and wrap this up simply because that narrative flowed nicely and everything else. I've got to tell you, this was a real pleasure. Um, I will listen to things in a different context right now in my car when I'm driving around. You'll be happy to know that I did my laundry to feel the darkness the other day. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing about the book, too. It, there's, you know, it doesn't delve into the stories, but it kind of gives you an idea of what the, the feeling was when they were written. All this, you know, and that's the thing, too, about Poison Idea. All that we didn't get into that, but every story, every song is something that actually happened, you know. Well, so there's some <laughs> crazy songs there, too. Did you 
find yourself coming to certain junctures and saying, can I write about this? Should I write about this? Oh, fuck, am I really framing that fairly? Did you go through a lot of that? Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, it might have been therapy just doing that to, you know, let people do when they're, like, younger, they're, they're abused, they talk about it to, like, to be therapeutical. But, um, you know, I was, like, really high for many years, and it just, and I didn't care, and I, it was, like, really numb. But once I kind of started to sober up and play in concert and I would be on stage and I would think about what I was saying, I would think mm -hmm. about these things. And it was kind of hard. It's a couple of times I had to like stop and I was like, wow, this is really fucked. This is like <laughs> really, you know, I'm like, I don't like saying, I don't like singing about this because this is like really like, you know, painful shit. So, uh, right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I'm still here. Yeah. And we're glad you are. Well, listen, I thoroughly enjoyed this. I will bug you down the road to do it again. But, uh, Jerry, thank you very much, sir. My pleasure, Dan. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long-form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from No Effects, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media.